For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram's fear is going to lead him away from God's promise and down a dangerous path of destruction. If we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us in our walk with the Lord. Now let's join Pastor Carlin for a message entitled, Off Track, Go Back. For those of you who don't know me, I am Pastor Carlin. I oversee the children's ministry here at the church, and so that's usually why you don't see me here in the second service. Not because I'm ditching or anything, but because I'm back working with your awesome kiddos, and we just have so much fun, uh, my assistant Daniel Bernard and I, with your kids, and uh, today they, they let me ditch, and so I'm here with the adults, and I hear it's pretty exciting, but uh, who knows? It's been probably, gosh, a year since I've been to second service but I hear it's really exciting, so we'll see. <laughs> uh, I'm filling in for Pastor Ross today. We have an amazing pastor, uh, Ross, and his wife, Barb. It's just such a blessing to our fellowship, uh, such a blessing to myself and my wife, Jeanette, uh, personally, just knowing them, working alongside them. And he is unable to make it this morning. He was doing a memorial down south for a family, and he's going to spend a couple days uh, just resting and kind of um, um, getting ready to come back up here, but he will be here uh, this upcoming Sunday, he'll return. Well, it's always uh, just an incredible honor, and I'm always humbled when I'm asked to fill in and cover for Pastor Ross. I've just been so blessed by his teaching and the teaching here at this church and the fellowship with everyone here, and I just look back on all the times, the years I've been in this room, and how God just spoken to me so clearly through his word, how he's corrected me, how he's encouraged me, how he's strengthened me, and uh, how he's matured me. And so I always take it seriously, and I'm always just excited when I'm asked to preach because I know that God's going to do something awesome. So today we're going to look in the Old Testament of Scripture, if you have your Bibles. Please turn to Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to begin with verse 10. And while you're making your way there in your Bibles, I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we've gathered here because we want to be instructed by your word. We know that this is not the words of man, but this is your holy scripture, God-breathed, uh, useful for teaching, correction, training, rebuking, in righteousness. Lord, this is how we can learn from you. Lord, we pray that you would just prepare our hearts for today's message. We pray that you would just uh, correct us in the areas that need correction, encourage us where we need encouragement, Lord. Strengthen our feeble bones, Lord, in the inner man by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in September 2010, in Switzerland, a man by the name of Robert Ziegler found himself stranded near the peak of a mountain in Bergen, Switzerland. He was inside of his van, and he had followed his satellite navigation system, which led him up the wrong road. We have a picture of this for you. Bergen, Switzerland. Beautiful. And this is the road he was stuck on. Exactly. So he found himself going further and further up this road, ends up almost near the peak of a mountain in Switzerland, following a satellite navigation system, and realizes he's completely stuck, and he's forced to call for help on his mobile phone. So emergency sh services shows up with a helicopter and a rescue team, and this is him in his van 
being hoisted off the top of the mountain. You can see there in the picture. <laughs> Everyone's worst fear, right? <laughs> please, please let that not be me. How do I explain that to my wife or husband? Well, in an account, Ziegler told police, he said, you know, I was lost and I kept hoping that each little turn would get me back to the main road. In the end, it told me to turn around, but of course I couldn't by then. <laughs> and in response to Ziegler, a fire brigade spokesman said, well, he claims he didn't see any footpath signs as he was driving, but he must have been a pretty fair driver to make it that far up a glorified goat trail. And that's what that was. <laughs> And I think we can all identify with times that we've been lost, uh, times when we've just been off course, uh, and that can happen even in our spiritual walk with the Lord too. And so we're going to look at an account in Scripture in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, with a man named Abram, and we're going to see how he got off course, and we're going to see how God brought him back. And those are the two points that we will focus on today if you're taking notes, how Abram got off track and how God brought him back. So let's look at the first point, how Abram got off track. Well, to be off track, you need to be on track first. The Bible teaches that all of us are born sinners, that none of us uh, is born a Christian or born right with God. We've all been born into sin, therefore separated from God because of our sin. And so we have to get on the right track in that we know how that happens. That happens through faith in the one and only true God and in faith in his promises, so in the beginning of chapter 12, we're introduced to this man named Abram. And if you know the Bible, you're probably familiar with the story of the man Abraham. This is the very same man. This is where he's first introduced to us, where we first learn about him, and we already kind of know the exciting things are going to happen with him. This is where the Israelites are going to come from, uh, modern-day uh, Israel in, in, in Jerusalem, and God's temple, and the law is going to be given to him, Moses. Uh, David, all these things are going to come from this man. And we're looking at the very first account. And so this is how he got on track. God called Abram. He called him out of his, of his country. He called him out from his family. And he called him away from serving and worshiping the fake idols that he and his family worshiped. And God gave him a promise. He said, go to the land that I will show you. Abram believed in simple faith and he obeyed with the obedience that comes by faith. And he left his old life and he walked the life of faith with the Lord. Well, in verse seven, we see that he travels. And we have a map of his travels here I want to show you. This is where he lived in a place called Ur, also known in scripture of Babylon. And it's modern day Iraq, that general area. He traveled all the way up to Haran spent a little bit of time there, and then traveled down to Canaan. And God led him to Canaan, and here is where God is going to appear to him and give him a very specific promise right here in Canaan. So verse 7 of chapter 12 uh, just records this account. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. That was the promise. And it says, Abram uh, built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. So we see two things. One, we see the promise that God gave him, and this is the promise he gave him. He said a, he gave him a place, a land. And he says, Abram, this is gonna be your land. This is the place that I have for you right here. This is where I was bringing you out of. I was bringing you out so that I could bring you in to this land. But there's a second thing promised. It says, to your offspring. 
Abram was in his 70s. He, he and his wife Sarai were barren. They have no children at that time. And they had probably given up on any hope of having kids. So he promised him uh, offspring. He promised him a people. And he promised him a place. And that was God's promise to Abram. And Abram believed God again. And the response of that was that he built an altar and just worshipped the Lord God who had appeared to him. He just worshipped him. That's all you can do when you realize that it's God that's doing the moving and it's God that's making the promises and he just asks you to believe and trust in him. And you do and the response is just worship. It comes out of you. That's what we were created to do originally when we're saved and we're on track. That's by nature what God wants us to do and what, what happens as just a simple natural response to trusting and believing God's promises. Worship. Then we see him travel around a little bit in verses eight and nine. He's traveling around in this promised land. Uh, he's got a close relationship with the Lord. Uh, he comes to a place called Bethel, and he builds an altar there and calls on the name of the Lord, and he, he just worships God again. And we just get this impression of this thriving relationship with God, and we just know that this is gonna be an, an amazing thing, an incredible story, and it's so similar to what it's like when we first come to faith in Christ Jesus today. It's, it's this, the on-fire new believer who's got that thriving, fresh, pure relationship with God. They know the God who's forgiven their sins. They're right with him now. They're worshiping him when they used to curse him. Their life has changed. They've been made new. God's promises are true and real. And we see the sun setting on this amazing relationship, and I'm sure Abram thought, this is how every day of the rest of my life is going to be. I'm just going to be with God. Everything's great. And we're going to see that as we pick up in verse 10, Abram's going to face something called a test of faith, his first trial. So let's look at verse 10, and I'll read this to you. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. We're going to pause there and look at this. So from this verse, we see that all of a sudden we've gone from faith and a thriving relationship to now fear and, and worry and a departing. The problem was famine, and famine is serious. It's serious today, and it's serious, uh, more serious back then. His fear was death. He thought he was going to die. And so his response was to leave. And at first glance, it Looking at this, everything kind of seems fine. You say, okay, that's a fact. Let's go on and get on with the story, right? Makes complete sense. But what's happened is he's gone from faith to fear, and his fear has blinded him to, to faith and promises that God has made already, okay? Now, he's not the first one to have this happen to him, and it's not just because he was a new believer. In fact, there's a story in Scripture where there's a very mature believer, a prophet, who battled the prophets of Baal, his name was Elijah, and he fell into the same thing. You see, the story in 1 Kings chapter 18 records the account of how Elijah, this man of God, had been protected by God and fed by ravens in the wilderness and all these incredible things, and he had incredible faith, and God was using him to proclaim his word. And then finally, God says, like, now's the time. And, and A, uh, Elijah goes to Ahab, the wicked king, and says, get all of your false prophets together. Let's go to the top of Mount Carmel, and we will find out which God is the real God. It's an epic showdown. 
They get all of Israel together, right? And they're coming up to the top of the mountain and it's showdown time time. and being the, the gentleman he was, Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. And so they're going first and they're dancing and they're cutting themselves and they're screaming and crying out, oh, Baal, answer us. But no one answered, it says. They went on and on and on until it was almost dark. And Elijah says, okay, my turn. And he goes up there. He rebuilds the altar that had been knocked down because Israel was in rebellion against the Lord at that time. He rebuilds it. He says, everybody come close. He pours water on it. He says, okay. And they're going, this isn't going to work. And he just prays a simple prayer at the hour of the evening sacrifice. And God answers by fire from heaven, which consumes the sacrifice, burns up the water, and burns and devours the stones of the altar. And the people just respond by crying out, the Lord, he's God, the Lord, he is God. And they rush down and they, they wipe out the prophets of Baal and they're ready to follow the Lord. And Elijah is going, what, what an amazing victory. And there'd been a drought for three years and Elijah starts praying and then it begins to rain. And he's just He's doing these amazing things. He's running to the palace. He's just ready. This is the revival. He's sure of it. But then, then Queen Jezebel, who was on the side of the prophets of Baal, she, she didn't like it very much. And she said, I'm going to kill Elijah for what he's done. And Elijah finds out about this. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3, it says that he feared for his life and he left. And we have that as an example. We can look at that today in scripture and see the correlation in our own life with what we're going through, but Abram didn't have that. He didn't have an example of of what's going on, and so he's doing what's natural to him, uh, but there's still some things we can fault him for. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, that faith is the the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. So naturally, fear being the opposite of faith, would be the assurance of things dreaded with no evidence of anything contrary to that. And so you're filled with one or the other. You're either filled with faith in the Lord God or you're filled with fear, but you can't be filled with both. It's one or the other. And so we're gonna look at a few ways that he makes some mistakes. So here's the first mistake that Abram made. It's the first thing that's missing in this account. Now there was a big problem in the, in the promised land. Uh, he's afraid, his fear is blinding him. And so his response is to leave. Well, he did not ask God for directions. And that's so easily how we get off path. God might have told him to leave. And he said, yeah, that's the right thing. God might have said, no, you're going to stay. I've got something to provide for you. And we get some uh, encouragement and direction with how to deal with trials and tests of faith in our life, particularly with how they do with God's promises. It's no coincidence that it was a famine and not a war or a famine and not uh, some other type of disaster. A famine meant the, the, the land that God had promised, the place that God had promised, there was something wrong with it seemingly. Didn't have enough food. Something's wrong with God's promise. And so let's look at James chapter one, starting at verse two and going through five to see how James instructs us for dealing with tests of faith. And this is what he says. He says, "'Consider it pure joy, my brothers, "'whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James instructs us and says, look, you're going to have your faith tested. But the first thing he says, is he says, consider it pure joy. 
And David Guzik, a, a wonderful uh, Calvary Chapel pastor, commented on this and said, you know, he doesn't say you have to feel it all joy. He doesn't say that you have to act like it's all joy. He says, just consider it joyful. Count it as joy. And he said, this is why. Because your faith is being tested right now. And the reason that God's doing that is he's developing perseverance in you. And as soon as perseverance has finished its work, it's gonna make you mature and complete, lacking nothing. God wants mature believers. Faith is not something that's earned. Faith is something that's given. And faith is something that is grown. And both of those things come from God. And the way that God does it, he does it by testing our faith, providing situations where the very promises he's given us are, are on the carpet. And here he says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom during these trials, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. James instructs us, he says, look, you're gonna have trials. Whether you're a new believer, like Abram at this point, or whether you're a mature believer who's spreading the word of God and having these outrageous debates with unbelievers, you can still fall into the same trap that Elijah fell into. You're going to have trials, but you need to go to God and ask for direction. And he said this, and God will give you wisdom to anyone. Doesn't matter who you are, he won't find fault with you. He will give you wisdom on what to do. And it's so funny how simple it is, you know? I, I think this idea of asking for directions, I think that for guys especially, it's a lot harder in life even when you're going someplace to ask for directions, right? Because <laughs> you're a guy, you know where you're going. You know where you're going in life. And uh, I think sometimes, honestly, for guys, we would rather be up on the top of a peak in the mountain of Switzerland, <laughs> having got there on a goat path, and then be airlifted to safety, van and all, okay, then to stop at the bottom of the hill and ask directions. I mean, it sounds really silly, but I, th I see myself doing these things, you know? I'm like, oh yeah, why didn't I stop and ask for directions? Train yourself to ask God for direction when thing goes things go wrong. You always have time to pray. You always have enough time to get down on your knees and ask God for help and ask God for wisdom. And you know, back to directions, I... I see that in Scripture. I don't really see a lot of guys in Scripture uh, stopping and asking for directions when they're traveling places either. So I think it's kind of justified. In fact, the only place that I see someone doing that is the account in Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men are coming from the east and they're following the start of Jerusalem and they ask King Herod, where's the child that was born here, king of the Jews? They're asking for directions. All right? So they're the only ones that did it, but they were wise men. But there's plenty of accounts... <laughs> It's just, it's unnatural for us. It really is. We don't want to ask for directions. We know, we, we know this already. We can deal with this. That's a response, right? But you know what? There's plenty of accounts in Scripture of godly men getting on their knees and when they're not, not knowing what to do, getting on their knees and asking God for direction. And that's what's being emphasized here. Although it may be good to actually stop and humble yourself and ask for directions instead of driving around in circles for a couple hours. So train yourself. Train yourself to go to God in prayer. And so the question I have for you today from this, looking at this right away, verse 10, seeing that the biggest error he made first off was that he didn't ask God for directions. He was just talking with God. He had a thriving relationship with God, but he didn't go to him for direction. So here's the question for you today. What is it that you are fearing right now that you have not brought in before the Lord and asked for wisdom for? What is it? What is it in your life this morning as you're sitting here that, that there's just a fear? We all have fears, okay? 
How are you dealing with them? Are you taking it before the Lord? Are you trying to figure it out in your own mind? And the follow-up question to that is, are you afraid that by bringing it before the Lord, are you afraid of something God might ask you to do with it? Are you afraid he might ask you to leave something? Are you afraid he might ask you to go somewhere or to come somewhere? Is that the fear that you have? Is that the reason that you won't ask? It's so, we're so, human nature is just so simple. We always rely on ourselves. We don't rely on God, and God's training us to rely on him. Now, the second area we can fault Abram on is that this was so quick, and it wasn't like he was just going somewhere else and he just didn't ask God before going somewhere. He was leaving something, and he was leaving something big. And fear will always make you leave what God has promised you. You see, three verses ago, God gave him an incredible promise. He said, no, Abram, you will have this land. This is your place. And you will have a people, even though your wife's barren. And Abram believes him. All right, Lord, and he worships him. But now three verses later, there's a problem. He goes from faith to fear. And all of a sudden, you know, God's promises must have failed. Something's wrong here. It's not working out. And that's the exact same thing that we can do. How quickly do we leave God's promises when we're in fear? We are quick to step back from ministry. We're afraid of something. We're called up to do something, to step out a little bit more, and we step back from ministry that God's given us, a people and a place to minister to. Uh, maybe it's a relationship. God brought, you know, spouse, your husband or your wife. You know, God says, I, I, I helped arrange that in a godly way but you're ready to leave because there's something in the relationship that you're afraid about. Or maybe it's the gospel. The gospel can be scary as a believer, especially a new believer. Gospel is scary. People are offended by that. So you're going to leave that. And instead of talking about, you know, how we're all sinners and we need a Savior and there's only one Savior and that's the man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose from the dead, who will judge the world in righteousness in, a, in days to come, and who's returning. Instead of saying that because it's too offensive and, and you're kind of afraid of how people will respond, you just change it all over to God's love. I'm just gonna talk about God's love. No, we're just gonna stick with love and we're gonna go around and we're gonna help people, which is good. That's good, right? And then we're gonna love people. Um, we're just gonna fail to tell them the one thing about God's love, which is that God demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And the only way people can be saved is by hearing, Romans 10 says. Faith comes by hearing. You've got to tell them the gospel. It's great to do good works. It's great to talk about God's love, but God's love is demonstrated in a very specific way that applies to them. And it is the power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes but you're ready to walk away from that. Go to God in prayer. If you need help in that area, go to God in prayer. Go to someone else for advice, another godly person you look up to. Go to his word and see how his disciples shared God's love through the gospel. Those are the two biggest errors that Abram makes, and we make those same errors today. But then there's two ways that he justifies his lack of faith. Here's the first way, if you look at the verse. It says, he went down to Egypt to live there for a while. You guys catch that? Verse 10? He was just going there for a while. No, 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 no. It's just for a time. He's not leaving God or anything crazy like that. He's just going down there temporarily. Just things aren't working out right now. 
Hey, look, how come you're not in fellowship? How come we don't see you at church anymore? Oh, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm taking some time off. I'll be back in a year or so. so I haven't turned my back on God. I'm just, you know, not going to do what he says for a little bit. For a little bit, okay? We lie. We all do this. I see this in my own life where we're trying to justify our lack of faith because of our fear by saying it's going to be temporary, right? There's no shortcuts in tests of faith. There just aren't. There just aren't. So you're going to get married in a couple months, and it's the summer, and you know, you're done with school, and you don't really have a place to live, so you're just going to live together temporarily. But you, you'll be married. You'll be right with God again in a couple months. You're just going to be wrong for a couple months. You're both believers. You don't like, turn your back on God or anything like that. You're just ignoring his, man, his command to even avoid the hint of sexual immorality. But it's just for a time. Or you know what? You've got to get your car paid off. And so you add a couple hours on your time card each week. You have to drive to work, right? This is just temporary. You're only going to do this until it's paid off, then that's it. Then you're back on track with, you know, obeying the Lord and being honest, not defrauding people or stealing. We do this. It's the lie that when the fear is gone, I'll be back. And that's why people leave what God has promised them. They leave so many things. They're leaving God's very promise. You're leaving the church that God said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church? And you leave and go out from that? No way. God has commanded us. He says, don't give up the habit of meeting together as is the habit of some, but stay in fellowship. And he told that to people who were being persecuted because they were going to church. Stay in fellowship, stay in God's word, stay in prayer, and don't believe the lie that because it's temporary, it's okay. So that's the question. That's the other question this morning. So where in your life this morning are you justifying blatant sin or getting off track with God and saying it's only temporary? It's only temporary. It's not an excuse. It's a justification for what you know is wrong. Get right with the Lord now in that. And then finally, there's one other thing that he justifies. Look at the the very end of the verse. It says, he went to Egypt, he did all these things because the famine was severe. He justified it by the size and severity of the fear. And we do that too. Hey, I'm afraid for my life. God's promises are out the window now. Now I gotta figure it out myself. Those are all well and good when I'm going to church and listening to Christian music in the car, but when I get the letter or the phone call, uh, that's done Like, now I gotta figure this out and forget about praying to God, forget about going and getting godly counsel, forget about praying and getting counsel from his word or fellowshipping together. No, I've gotta solve this problem now. I could die. That doesn't justify it. And it's interesting that that it is famine because I don't think we understand truly in America how serious a famine is. We hear of it, we see some pictures that bother us, but we don't understand it. A famine, even in the last hundred years, I'll give you an example of one famine, 1958 to 1962, there's a famine in uh, Asia. 18 million people died. That's the low estimate. Some numbers go as high as 45 million die. Slow, horrible death, no food. That's in the age of airdrops and planes and communication and agricultural improvements on making more food. We're having people dying in the 19th, uh, 20th century here. That's crazy. Now go back to the 12th chapter into the creation of the world in Abram's day, where scripture itself says the famine was severe. That is a death sentence. You don't get any more fearful than that. That's something somebody tells you that and you go, oh yeah, I don't blame you for leaving. 
right? I can't think of a fear greater than that, but that does not justify a lack of faith. A big fear doesn't void the warranty of God's promises. It just doesn't. It's impossible. That is specifically what God's promises are for. So maybe you had a really, really bad experience in a church, and you could come up and tell me, and I'd say, well, I don't blame you for not wanting to attend fellowship. Maybe it's justified, but that does not void God's promise to come and sit under the teaching of his word and let the, the healer heal you and to let him counsel you, the wonderful counselor, and let the mighty God work in your life. It doesn't justify leaving his promises. So don't believe that lie. And if you're listening to this this morning, what is it? What severe fear? That's what Abram had. He had severe fear, a severe famine, right? What severe fear are you holding on to to justify your disobedience to God? Well, now we're going to see what happens as a result of this. Let's move on to, chat, uh, to verse 11 and go through 13 and see what happens with Abram now, who's now filled with fear and now acting on it. He says this, or the scripture says this, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be well treated for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Okay, so we have a new problem. <laughs> the new problem is this, and it's a big problem. The new problem is that now there's another fear and it's just as bad. Instead of dying by famine, he's gonna die at the hands of the Egyptians, he's thinking. And the problem is with his wife. She's too beautiful, right? Here's, here's a blessing God's given him and now it's become a curse. Gosh, so he's gotta figure out what to do and his response last time was to leave. His response this time is to lie. Can't leave it, right? So let's lie about it. And it's interesting, the first point here in this is that fear will always lead to more fear. Fear is never going to lead you to faith. Fear will always lead you to more fear. Faith will lead you to more faith. But you can only have faith or fear, you can't have both. So are you going to believe God and his promises or are you going to just exchange the fears and think that's good enough? And imagine this picture as he's leaving the bottom part, the Negev, the bottom part of modern-day Israel, and going towards Egypt. They're walking across like a desert region. Uh, it's, it's hot. It's not pleasant. They're sleeping in tents. And it doesn't look like there's a lot of talking going on here. The weight of this is just burdened on his shoulders, and he's trying to figure this out. And he doesn't go to God. He doesn't ask for wisdom. Uh, he says, no, I'm, I'm just going to do this the way I've always done this. And he's trying to figure this out. And he finally comes to it, he goes, I've got to lie. Actually, I have to have my wife lie so that I can live. So he's got to convince his wife to do that. So he starts off the conversation after presumably a kind of quiet trip. This is what he says. I know what a beautiful woman you are. Isn't that great? Just opening line kind of gets your attention. And maybe, maybe she was just caught off guard. This was kind of surprising. She's like, wow, Abram sharing your heart with me, you know, and she expects him to, to say, you know, I don't know how you put up with me and traveling so much and sleeping in tents, you know, you could have had anyone and you chose me, and then he's like, when we get to Egypt, we're going to get something to eat, and we're going to go sit by that Nile River and gaze into the sunset. 
Maybe that's where she saw it going, you know. Or maybe, maybe she was on to him already. Maybe he's done this before. Maybe this was his M.O. So she hears, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And she goes, but, right? All right, so where's the catch? You got my attention, but what do you want? What do you want, Abram? And so we see what he wants. And out comes all this fear. And this is what he says. He says, when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife. And they're going to kill me, but they're going to let you live. Is that what you want, Sarai? Is that what you want? You want me to die and you will live? What kind of a selfish woman are you? (laughs) Right? I cannot believe that. No, actually, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I just can't believe that you would let that happen to me. Well, there's one thing you can do. You can say you are my sister, and that way it will go, I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So what did he want? He wanted his life, and he wanted to be treated well. He wanted a good life. That's what he wanted in all this. And let me tell you, the biggest warning sign that you are on the wrong path is when you think the only way is to lie or have someone else lie for you. Never, ever in Scripture does it ever encourage us or tell us to lie, no matter what we're going through, even if it's facing death. Always in Scripture, we are encouraged that lying is a sin and a big sin. Just because it's easier for us and more people do it uh, and, and it comes naturally doesn't justify it before God Out of one out of the 10 commandments, God chooses 10 commandments to just nail humanity and and show us we're sinners. And one of them is, thou shall not lie. In the end of of the account of the world and revelation and how everything's gonna end, when God judges the world, we see that, that all liars, it says, are listed in the group of people thrown into the lake of fire. God takes lying seriously. That is a sign that you are trying to manipulate the situation that you think you're living in a world without God and you are absolutely not on his path. Something's wrong. Get on your knees in prayer. Go to him. Go to him. And the other thing that happens here is that your lack of faith affects those around you. You don't think that affected Sarai? Now she has to make a decision. Well, my husband dies or I tell a lie. Lot is with him, his nephew. You don't think that affects Lot? his nephew watching Uncle Abram, and he's going, you know, hey, okay, this is how he's dealing with it, and he's learning how to resolve his problems. Parents, your kids are looking to you as an example of what to do when you face your fears. Be godly examples. Kids, they understand so much more than we give them credit for. They really, they really do. So are you coming home late? after a long day's work, and then arguing with your wife about finances, and, well, okay, well, maybe we'll just lose the house then. Who cares? And kids are hearing this, and that's on their shoulders now. We might lose our house, their whole little world. Or, you know, well, maybe I'll just work more. Maybe that'll solve all of our financial problems. I'm gonna lose my dad? I'm not gonna get to see him as much? Your kids are hearing this. They're seeing your fear. And kids are smart. They can see, they know when mom and dad are, are trying to cover something, but they know when you're afraid. They can see real fear. They see that. So are they seeing you uh, uh, just trying to solve it yourself without going to God, or are they seeing mommy and daddy scared for their life and getting on their knees and saying, we need to pray, and then going before God in prayer and asking for help and asking for wisdom and confessing the fear, saying, God, I'm scared to death. I need your help. What can I do? What can I do in this situation, Lord? 
God, I need wisdom on what to do, and I want to put my trust in you. Is that what your kids are seeing? Employers, is that what your employees are seeing? When the cash flow is tight, when the job gets all screwed up, when somebody makes a big mistake and it costs you a lot of money, is that what they're seeing? How you respond when that fear hits you? I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose this company. How am I going to pay them? Is that what they're, they're seeing in you? Are you being a good, godly example in that way? Or are you doing what Abram did? You're leading them down the wrong path, leading them into sin. Everyone has someone looking to them as an example. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, someone is looking at you today as an example. So who is it? Who's looking at you right now as an example? Who is it in your life that's looking up to you that your fear will affect that your lack of faith will affect, that you can influence for the good and train them and show them how God has trained you and showed you. Your fear affects people. So we're gonna see the result of all this. We're gonna see the result of all this. Let's look at verse 14. So here's what comes to pass. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. So here's the result. The result is his worst fears came true. And he got everything he planned for. And that's often the result, right? And I, the first account in this that everything happened. Why did everything happen exactly like he thought it would? The Egyptians took her, and not just any Egyptians, the most powerful Egyptian in the land, Pharaoh. There's no getting her back after this. And then Pharaoh did treat him well, like Abram was hoping. Everything went according to Abram's plan. But my guess is he wasn't too thrilled about it. You can imagine after uh, receiving all these things, and I'm sure the dust is kicked up by all the animals that are there, and it's in the air, you know, and, uh, and they're, they're coming. He's finding a place to set up his tent and just looking out across all, this, all these material possessions he has now, and then he goes inside his tent, and the dust settles, and then the sun sets, and he's laying there all by himself in his tent. You can imagine the only thing that was going through his mind was that his wife was in Pharaoh's palace. And that feeling that he had there, that is what it feels like when you are off God's path. That's it, the conviction. How did I get myself into this? I can't believe I did. What am I gonna do now? That's what it feels like. And you realize it's as a result of your own doing. You did this to yourself. Well, in doing that, Abram successfully forfeited the second part of God's promise. The first part, a place, he left and went to Egypt. The second part, a people, where do you think they were gonna come from? Sarai, his wife. He's gonna have offspring from his wife and the scriptures confirm that later on in the account of Abram. They say that, yeah, God made the promise to his wife too. She was gonna be the bearer of children for this nation that God said would come about. Abram, Abram rejected both of them. He gave them up. He exchanged them, a people in a place. He gave away uh, the land. He left it, and he gave away his wife, thinking he had to in fear. And he got material possessions instead. And let me tell you, the world will always be willing to give you something in exchange for the promises of God. Every time. You want fame, you want fortune, the world will give you those things. Just turn your back on Jesus. Don't, don't mention his name. 
You think you're gonna get somewhere in this world by, by saying, I'm a Christian and I give the glory to God? Yeah, but just don't talk about Jesus. Just don't do that and we'll let you be on the show. Maybe they'll give you admiration or praise or you'll get a good name in the eyes of the world. They'll trade you that. Just, you know, turn your back on God and his promises. That's what happens. And Abram sadly turned his back completely on all of God's promise to him. Well, I'll tell you why this didn't happen. I mean, it happened so thoroughly. Something's going on here, but it didn't happen for this reason. It didn't happen that by somehow speaking his negative feelings or negative fears that they came to pass. That's ridiculous. We don't speak fear into existence or speak things into existence. God does that. Check it out in Genesis chapter one. We're created human beings. He's God. What happened here is what we're really seeing and why it's so perfectly constructed is that God is giving him over to his fear. Abram jumped out in fear. Abram was filled with fear. And now God gives him over completely to his fear. Here you go, Abram, exactly like you planned it. And look at the things he gets. He gets all kinds of things. And you'll notice there, it says he gets men servants and maid servants. That's where Hagar comes from, if you're, if you're familiar with the story. Further entanglement, further ways of getting off the path starts here. It starts here. And one other thing that is so incredible about Scripture is this. You'll notice as we continue this account, the Holy Spirit who's writing Scripture is trying to emphasize the fact that he gave up on God's promises. Notice how many times that it says Egypt instead of just he went somewhere else or went down there. It says, no, he went to Egypt. And then when he came to Egypt, we arrived in Egypt, and then the Egyptians, Holy Spirit's going, Egypt, 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 wrong place. You're in the wrong place. Reader, he's in the wrong place. Then you'll notice that Holy Spirit starts emphasizing the use of wife, his wife. And then he said to his wife, don't say you're my wife. And then they took, his, they took the woman who was his wife. And you'll see that throughout scripture. The Holy Spirit's going, your wife, your wife, your wife. That's your wife, Abram. That's your wife that you're surrendering here. You're giving up the people that God has promised you. Hmm. God's word is so powerful. And you know, that should have been the end of the story. That should have been it. We all could be going to the barbecue right now. <laughs> the moral of the story would be don't do what Abram did. He got himself in a mess. He started off on track with God and then he forfeited all of God's promise and he was in a place where he couldn't be rescued and that was it. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. We saw how we get off track and how he got off track. We saw what that looks like. Now we're gonna see how God brings us back. Let's look at verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh. Same word as plagues in, in the, uh, the Hebrew there, by the way. So he inflicts plagues on Pharaoh in his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, what have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? What did you say? Or why did you say she is my sister so that I could take her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. God stepped in supernaturally and changed this. Just like God stepped in and saved Abram originally and called him out of sin and gave him a promise, come to me, I'll give you a land. You gotta believe in me, and he did. Same thing, Abram was in a place, should have been over, but God supernaturally moved in his life. 
to bring him back on track. Here's the first way he moved. He brought about consequences. Consequences. That's one of the ways that God gets us back on track. And look at who he brought the consequences to. It wasn't Abram who was most at fault, or Sarai who was like half as much at fault, but it was to Pharaoh who we would kind of look at and go, that's not fair. That's not fair for Pharaoh. How come he's the one that's getting the consequences? He didn't even know. That's our first response looking at this. And so I'll give you two reasons why uh, I think this happened. Here's the first reason, and here's the first lesson for us, that God's rules apply to everyone. Whether you know them or not, whether you believe in him or not, God's rules, God's laws, God's standard apply to you. Adultery is still adultery. Sin is still sin. Marriage is still marriage. God knows whose wife is whose. It's not confusing to him, but it might be you know, a surprise to us down here when the consequences happen, right? But imagine if he didn't bring consequences to Pharaoh. Imagine if the surprise wasn't when uh, Pharaoh summoned Abram to his, uh, his palace, right, and said, what have you done to me because I've got these diseases? What if the consequence was, well, there wasn't any consequences until Pharaoh died and was summoned before the throne of Christ and had to give an account of his life before the living God? And that's when he was surprised to find out that God's serious about sin. And that's when he was surprised to find out that God is holy. God, I had no idea you were holy and you hated sin so much. I had, I had no idea I was offending you that much. I didn't, I didn't know. Then the result would have been permanent and severe. But because of God's great love, yes, even for unbelievers, he allows consequences in this life. Some of them severe because there's a greater consequence coming dying in your sin and not knowing him. And that's one of the ways that God can get our attention is consequences, but the other one is, is what Abram got. You know, he's being summoned. Imagine that, getting summoned. You're, just, you're in this rut, and maybe you know what that's like in your Christian walk to go, I went from thriving with God to being stuck here with all this stuff and like, I don't even know where God is now. And then he gets summoned. Pharaoh wants to see you. And I'm sure it wasn't like a nice little like girly written note with letter, you know, like you're invited to talk with Pharaoh. I'm sure it was men with swords and they get out of the chariot and they're like, Abram, come to the door. And they're pounding on his door and they're like, get out here. You, you wanted me? Am I the right guy? What's going on? You want your stuff back? And he goes, <laughs> you go, Pharaoh wants to talk with you. And it doesn't sound nice. And so he's, he's going to the palace and he's walking up the big steps and he's looking at all the, the guards. He's thinking, I'm gonna die. And he comes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh does not have a happy look on his face. And Pharaoh just lays into him and he gets rebuked. And that's the second way that God will bring us back on track. Consequences is the first way. Second way is rebuking us, correcting us. What's amazing is that Pharaoh is not even a believer. He's an unbelieving ruler, but God can even use that type of person to correct you and get you back on track. The Bible says in Romans chapter 13 that every governing institution on earth has been placed there by God, and as a believer in Christ, you are commanded to submit to that authority. That's pretty tough. Sometimes we think we're above the authority, right? We're like, dude, I'm like buddies with Jesus. You know, he died for my sins. I'm a son of God, you know? And then you get pulled over, you know? with your Christian fish and your bumper sticker that says, I break for Bible studies, you know? What's the big deal? 
And then out comes a wonderful police officer, and he, he speaks some words from the Lord to you. He says, you're going too fast, slow down. That's straight out of scripture. There's a speed limit, pal, and we're supposed to submit ourselves to it. God can speak to us even through unbelievers. He can rebuke us and correct us even through unbelievers. And it doesn't have to just be a, you know, the governing force or somebody from the government, uh, even though we have wonderful, godly police officers that I know and, uh, and know our friends with. But he can even use unbelievers at your work and at your job. And if you don't believe me, just think of the last time, maybe this has happened to you recently, where an unbeliever has said, oh, I thought you were a Christian. Why do you, uh, you know, swear like that? Yeah, calling you out on something that uh, is actually in Scripture. It says not to do that. No unwholesome talk out of your lips. Wow, I thought you were a believer. How come you're parking in the handicap spot? Thought, weren't you like a Christian or something? <laughs> What's going on here? That's God rebuking you and correcting you. All right? And we're not talking about persecution when somebody's saying, I thought you were a Christian. How dare you say that I'm a sinner? We're not talking about that. All right? We're talking about when they're right, and you know they're right from Scripture. God can use that to get your attention. So the question is, how do you want to be corrected? Because God's given us something better. This is for what happens when we're off the path. God's given us something better to stay on the path. He's given us his word. His word is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Do you want to be rebuked? Uh, uh, Do you want consequences in your life? Is that how you want to learn to walk a holy life with God? Or do you want to learn it, not in front of believers, not in front of everyone, but together alongside in a fellowship, alongside believers who are going through the same thing or similar things? The person to the right or to the left of you who has been through that, who you can go, I need prayer for this. I don't know what's going on with my mouth. They say, I'll tell you how God rescued me out of that. And you can get encouraged and corrected from the word of God. That's what we're doing here. Or do you want to do it out in front of everybody? And I'll tell you a humbling experience because the other part of this is that the whole reason God chose Abram is to be a light to the world. He was bringing about a people so that he could bring about a Messiah so that the whole world can come to a knowledge of God and be saved from their wretched sins. But when you're not on God's path, you're not out there being a good example for people. You're not out there trying to save souls. You're trying to save your own self. And others are getting affected by that negatively. And then you get rebuked openly for that. And the whole thing's messed up. They're coming to know about God from consequences because of you. But God wants you to be a light. God wants you to know his gospel and share it rightly and humbly. And I'll tell you just a humbling time from my own life. Uh, uh, years ago, I was out at the Santa Rosa Junior College preaching. Uh, we were open-air preaching, myself and uh, a team. Uh, actually, the team was just Pastor Jim. <laughs> it's Jim and I teaching. We were a team. And we were preaching, and, and it was just, it was a big step for me. And we saw just, you know, things happen, big-time stuff happen. You know, there's a lot of resistance. And then God was doing just incredible things, and, and there was some responses. And I just remember after one of those times preaching, just going, gosh, Lord, you're just, you're using me, and I just feel on fire for you. And, and I was sitting down, I was drinking my water, and, and I closed it on up. And there was kind of a, a group of one or two girls that were kind of sitting uh, on the steps opposite us, just holding a sign. They wouldn't talk to us. They'd handwritten that just said something hateful about God, just kind of holding it up towards us while we were preaching. And I remember I had to go, and I was going to go throw my water bottle away. And so uh, just being kind of lazy and kind of silly, I went and I took off the lid of the, tra- or I opened up the trash can, and I put my water bottle in it. And I remember her going, the first time she talked to me, 
going, uh, oh, you're throwing that away? You're not going to recycle that? <laughs> and I went and sat down, and I was like, I just can't believe people. Here we're preaching the gospel to save people from something serious like hell. And she's, you know, she's concerned about a water bottle. She's concerned about recycling. She's not concerned about her own soul. And I'm just justifying all this. And then I just start feeling convicted. And I'm like, why am I feeling convicted about a water bottle? This is ridiculous. And I started having this wrestling match with the Lord kind of, you know, in my heart. And I was going, is it, was that wrong? Can't I make my own decision about where I put my water bottle, you know? And so finally I said, okay, Lord, you win. All you have to do is show me in Scripture where it says that I don't need to, that, that I have to recycle, and then I will go over there and I'll do it. And I reached over and I picked up my Bible, and right when it was about here, this is the verse that God brought to me. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody, if at all possible, as far as it depends on you. And that verse came to mind, and I just, I remember kind of shaking a little bit, and I put my Bible back down, like, oh man. And I just got up, probably beat red, so embarrassed, walked over there, opened up the trash can. I'm sure Jim was wondering what I was doing. <laughs> opened up the trash can, I reached in, I grabbed the bottle, I looked at her, I said, you know, I was wrong, I apologize, I should have recycled, and I put it in the recycling, and I just walked back and sat down, and I just was just undone. I was so humbled by that. I just couldn't believe it. And I think the thing that got me in the end was just thinking, how stupid of me that something so trife as that could prevent her from hearing the gospel. Let her be offended by the gospel, but not something, you know, a poor choice on my part. I remember being convicted by that and just going, gosh, I should have known that. I should have known that. So it's much better to be corrected by the word of God and to obey him and follow him. So let's see the result. Abram's been kicked out now of the land that, you know, he's been kicked out and rebuked and there's been consequences. So now let's see what happens to him. We're going to go to the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So what happens? God's bringing him back. He's, you can see kind of the result, maybe you can identify with that, whether you're a mature believer or whether you're a brand new believer. You can recognize that, that, yeah, he's got corrected, and it's not easy getting corrected, right? So he kind of wanders around a little bit. He doesn't go back home, but, you know, you can imagine what that trip was like with his wife and with Lot headed back. Just, it was not an exciting car ride, right? <laughs> Do you want to talk about it yet? No. No. <laughs> So he kind of wanders around, he kind of gets close to the promised land, he kind of goes from place to place, you know, he's kind of coming back to church, but, you know, he doesn't really know where he fits in or if he's going to go to that church or another church, he doesn't really know. And then finally, finally it gets him, finally he just goes back to where he was right with God last, to the altar he built at first, and he does what he should have done in the beginning, he calls on the name of the Lord and he worships God. And that is how God brings you back on track. He corrects you in his word. If you're off track and you're not uh, under the teaching of his word, he'll use consequences, he'll use rebuke. Receive it well, and this is what you do. There's, there's, this is the one thing that will get you back on track 
with God. You ready? Go back to where you were right with him. Go back to that place. Go back to reading your Bible. Go back to church. Go back to prayer. Go back to that place where you know you were right with him. And, and don't dwell on the past, but get in there. Get in there and realize that it's God that wants you back and is trying to bring you back. And you, you stand before him. You go, man, no matter what had happened before, you just go, God, here I am. I'm calling on your name. Remember me? And you worship him. And you worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long to be just, we just long to be right with you. We want to be on fire every day of our Christian life, but we know that we undergo tests of our faith. We undergo great trials, severe fear, but Lord, we want to do it right. And you've given us your word to, to teach us, to train us, to correct us when we need correcting. Lord, help us to receive your correction from your word so that we don't have to go off track, cause pain to others, drag this out, waste time, ours and yours, being horrible examples to even unbelievers around us. God, we just pray as we hear this message today, and this was a message for all of us, mature and brand new. Lord, we pray that we receive this correction well, that we learn to love your discipline. And we pray this, as we worship you in this song, Lord, we just turn to you in this moment. We come back to you under the, the preaching of your word, and we stand together, linking arms, and we just worship you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.